Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Tiki mai kake mai and welcome. From RNZ National, here's Our Changing World. What is it that triggers your levels of stress and anxiety? Maybe you've dealt with it in the past and looked to physically melt the stress away through meditation and yoga poses. Have you ever considered that the answer might lie on the level of nutrients that you're ingesting and how that might impact on your overall mood and how you're feeling? I'm Sonia Sly, and on Our Changing World, I'm visiting Canterbury University's Department of Psychology to look at the impact of micronutrients on stress, anxiety, and behavioural conditions like ADHD. But first, how micronutrients might be the answer to, yep, smoking cessation. Micronutrients have been shown to reduce stress in people and there's a high correlation between smoking and stress. PhD candidate Philippa Newton. We found a lot of people that came into my studies um, had actually relapsed during the Canterbury earthquakes, um, so they'd been smoking since then. So far, how many people have been through the trial? How did you go about finding people? About 130 people. That's a lot of people wanting to quit. Yes. So we had a lot of interest in people wanting to quit and we just recruited them around Christchurch on posters and mostly through Facebook. We had about 500 people interested in being in the study. Uh, quitting smoking is really hard to do, so we did find that it was really difficult for people and it was hard for people to stay in the study. What kind of quitting techniques had people used? Nicotine replacement therapy was really popular. A lot of people had tried quitline before, but um, to get the nicotine replacement as well. Some had tried hypnotists, the e-cigarettes. They tried everything, really. So people were pretty desperate. They really yeah. want to quit when they come on this trial. What's the actual procedure? So we did a baseline of um, two weeks in the second study and one to three weeks in the first study. And that was just looking at how much they smoked per day before we started anything and how much sort of their baseline withdrawal symptoms differed because a lot of withdrawal symptoms are to do with stress and anxiety and mood anyway. People went on the micronutrients for four weeks and this was to allow for those metabolic effects of the micronutrients to work before their quit date. And then after that four weeks, they had a quit date and we followed the quit line intervention, excluding that nicotine replacement. So the micronutrients replaced the nicotine replacement in the study. And then we followed participants for 12 weeks as they attempted to quit smoking. Was it enough? So that's what most studies do in smoking cessation and they follow up at six months. It isn't enough for the smoking cessation as you do get cravings for years afterwards. Most of the cravings do peak within the first two weeks, so we went above and beyond that first two weeks. Do those cravings, do they make people more anxious because they don't want to have to end up eating more? We didn't find that many participants did put on weight, but that is definitely a fear that that sort of replaced sugary, high-calorie food with the cig- instead of the cigarettes. Because, I mean, people start smoking for all different kinds of reasons, but one of those reasons for some people is that it helps to 
you know, suppress your appetite. That is definitely one of the reasons. But I think the more common thing that came out of my study that a lot of had relapsed since the earthquakes, and so they resulted that to stress. During the study, if they did relapse, it was quite often after a stressful event in their life. Were they smoking way more than they did before they had quit? Some were, and some were smoking less. What have the benefits been for these people that have been through the trial? A lot reported that the cravings were less than previous quit attempts and obviously lower cravings increases your chance of staying um, smoke-free. We also had participants with more energy and a big turnaround in how sort of they were operating in life. So we had participants that were joining the gym or flatmates commenting to participants that they were cleaner now, they were getting up earlier, they were sleeping better. So a lot of positive side effects from the micronutrients that we did suspect from previous research. 50% of the participants were in a placebo group. The pills look exactly the same but they're non-active. So for example a participant may have read these previous studies that micronutrients help with sleep and they come into the study and so they find that. So the things I'm saying now is only in the micronutrient group. I mean, so obviously people are experiencing the benefit of extra energy because of the micronutrients. I was sort of thinking, gosh, what are, the, what are these cigarettes actually doing to people normally? Not sure on the data if insomnia is increased in smoking, but there is a lot of data that has been around for decades showing that people with any type of dependence, so from cocaine to nicotine, do have deficiencies in those key micronutrients. Um, so it is possible that they are already coming into the study on a um, deficiency. What would be the, the nutrient that they are depleted of? There's studies on multiple micronutrients. Most of it is on cocaine and heroin um, users. That it is, They do have a deficiency in micronutrients, but there is also research out there for smoking. Oh, and that's because of the smoking or the drug taking all because their bodies naturally don't have it? Uh, so there's it's really hard <laughs> to say. No, it's fine. It's really hard to say with the research. Um, it could be for a variety of reasons. As we talked about earlier, some smokers do um, have a cigarette maybe instead of a meal. So that could be making them deficient in some nutrients. Yeah, it's quite hard because they're longitudinal studies. So you don't, like in our study, have that gold standard placebo group to compare the two. Has anything surprised you? There was many surprises that people were reporting. One I always remember is uh, someone that said that the Norwest wind no longer bothers them. Um, people in Canterbury probably only sort of understand that. But yeah, the Norwest is a really hot, horrible wind and it makes you feel migraines tired, and... migraines. It was just a way that she explained how much better she was feeling with stress, with sleep, um, just day-to-day -day functioning. It's true. Smoking is a habit that's difficult to kick, and the trials also showed a reasonable number of dropout. Some did come back in and then successfully quit, especially if they relapsed within those first two weeks. They came back in, um, we kept them on the micronutrients, and they did quit after that. So a lot of the time they'd drop out after a relapse. I think some felt embarrassed and you know didn't want to continue with the study, or they found it didn't work. And these people had already tried eight different products before this, and it just shows the sort of issue we have with smoking and how hard it is to quit. Beyond willpower, obviously. <laughs> yes, I think far beyond willpower. Micronutrients may be the answer to smoking cessation, if you're truly willing to quit and there aren't too many underlying factors inhibiting the process. But as I'm about to find out, they're also useful in treating behavioural disorders like ADHD, according to... Julia Rucklidge. I'm a professor of clinical psychology and my area of research is in the area of nutrition and mental health. 
So you've also been doing some research into micronutrients and ADHD, ADD and anxiety and stress? Correct, yes. We've done research over the last 10 years looking at the impact of micronutrients on these various disorders. It's been well documented throughout history that food is the best medicine. And treating mental illness through nutrition, Dr. Rutledge says, is... Not a new idea. If we go back in history, there are examples of using single nutrients to impact on mental health. A good example of this would be a condition studied in the early 1920s, and it was called pellagra. Pellagra was caused by people having a corn-based diet. As a consequence of this very restricted diet, and it would be due to poverty, resulted in people not getting enough of a nutrient called niacin, which is vitamin B3. You end up with a lot of dermatitis, like scaly skin, physical symptoms like diarrhea, but you can also end up with psychiatric symptoms like psychosis or like dementia, hallucinating, seeing things, but also having a significant cognitive decline as a consequence of this condition. As soon as they determined that the reason why they were getting these symptoms was because they had a niacin deficiency, the way to cure it was to simply give more niacin. And that also led to fortification. And that also cured their psychotic symptoms. So Thanks to the fortification of foods way back when, today our cereals are also fortified. Dietary fibre, 4.1, 12 milligrams. Potassium, 1 biomin, 0.28 milligrams. Niacin, 2.5 milligrams. So what is actually in these micronutrients? Vitamins and minerals. Vitamin D, that's vitamin E, that's your B vitamins, um, vitamin C, and then your minerals. So that would be things like selenium, iron, iodine, magnesium, uh, potassium. You know when you can buy supplements for like stress relief or whatever, do you have an extra component of that particular nutrient? We don't think that there is anything necessarily in there that you have to give more of, but we do give them all of them at a level that you not typically get out of your diet alone. They're not mega doses, but they are doses that are probably enough for them to have a physiological effect. Certainly, there's a a lot of data on uh, B vitamins and stress. If you're undergoing a a lot of a stressful event, B vitamins are really good way step forward. In our studies, we are dealing with a lot of chronic conditions, so ADHD. We don't think that just the B vitamins alone are going to be enough to provide the body with all it needs. That's why the minerals become essential. Often your one-a-day vitamin pills don't come with a very high dose or high load of of minerals and probably also not in a bioavailable form, which means that even though you're consuming them, you may not be absorbing them. A large component of Julia's research is looking at whether people with mental illness may have a greater need for nutrients that can't be obtained from their food alone. So these individuals might have what's called an inborn error of metabolism. These people may need more nutrients for their metabolic reactions. Given too that our modern diets are largely comprised of highly processed foods with plenty of refined sugar and fat, and forget about the fruits and vegetables the greater the risk of developing mental illness or even passing on behavioural conditions like ADHD. It's a scary thought. 
our nutrient content of our food has changed dramatically over a very short period of time. And so an apple of today is not as nourishing as an apple of 1950. Have you discovered whether or not there are more cases of ADHD and you know, is anxiety more prevalent now? The numbers are going up. So if you look at international research, it shows that the number of children with ADHD has tripled over two, over two decades. Is that because we're getting better at diagnosing it? Is it because their diet has changed? I don't think it's just diet alone. There's also research that shows that if the mother eats that way during pregnancy, then her child is at risk of having a child who has a behavioral problem, of which ADHD would be seen as a behavioral problem. Conversely, the more you eat a whole um, food diet, um, what we'd call a Mediterranean-style diet, high in fish, nuts, healthy fats, lots of fruits and vegetables, and really staying away from the highly processed packaged foods, then the lower your risk for mental health problems. And that's been shown all over the world. But for individuals who have issues around anxiety and depression, there's a greater desire for food that's loaded with sugar and fat, which could compound the problem. Right? Yes. I mean, that's often an issue that's raised, that if you're feeling a certain way, that you're going to be drawn to eating certain types of foods. But the research doesn't support that particular causality. One of the the reasons why I am doing this work is that if we look at the area of, say, for example, for ADHD, and we're really honest about some of the data that's come out, we're still not doing a great job of treating them. I mean, we've got medications that have a really a fantastic impact on them for the short term, but we're not having an impact on those children in the long term in terms of changing outcomes for them. That was one of the reasons why I decided to explore the use of nutrients for the treatment of ADHD was to see whether or not we could look at another way forward so that there's greater selection and options for families to treat uh, their, the ADHD symptoms in their children. How many people went through the trial and for how long? So our first randomized control trial was done with 80 adults with ADHD. So about half of those were on the micronutrients and half of them on the placebo. So it may be seen as being a fairly small study from the perspective of some scientists, and that would be a common criticism because if you have small studies, then the worry is that you have a chance finding alone. Another thing that is important for scientists to consider and also for the public to consider is what we call an effect size. And the effect size is just how big is the difference between those taking the micronutrients and those who are taking the placebo because many people do respond to a placebo. So it's a very real effect. In that sample, about a quarter of our participants did respond to the placebo, which is quite remarkable, meaning that their ADHD symptoms reduced quite substantially. But we had twice as many responding in the micronutrient group, which is quite a robust difference. What physiological outcomes did you see? In the area of psychiatry and psychology, we don't have a blood test for determining whether or not someone's ADHD has gotten better. So we can't use that type of marker when, whereas in contrast in medicine, if you had, say, a bacterial infection, you could measure that and you could see whether or not an antibiotic had an impact on the bacterial infection. We don't have that luxury. So the way that we can determine whether or not someone is better is often by symptom reports. And you can get symptom reports from the person in that study, we had it from the spouses, so people who were living with those people with a, who had ADHD. Um, with children, you can get it from teachers. Primary things we're looking at 
whether or not their attention, their concentration got better, their impulsivities, the risk-taking, the likelihood of doing things very quickly without thinking them through, and then hyperactivity, which is just that energy, that over-level of energy, being hyperactive, being not, you know, just feeling incredibly restless, always needing to move, those types of symptoms. And so across the board, the people who were taking the, the nutrients reported far greater changes in those symptoms than the people who were taking the placebo. But treating ADHD isn't cut and dry because there are often other issues associated with the disorder. Like mood problems or anxiety, they have sleep problems. But we also looked at mood specifically and found that people who entered the trial in a very depressed state, if they had been given the micronutrients, they were far more likely to recover than people who had been given the placebo. So not only did we help people in the symptoms that we were targeting, but we also helped them in other areas as well. The ADHD symptoms in themselves may not be what's completely debilitating. It may be the anxiety and the social anxiety that often we see occurring alongside it that can also be problematic. Stepping aside from ADHD, There's nothing like a natural disaster to send people's heart rates and anxiety soaring. And being based down in Christchurch during the two major earthquakes provided interesting opportunities to closely monitor people already on the trial. We had some really intriguing data in the September earthquake. Based on this, the people who were in our current trials, those who happened to be taking nutrients at the time of that earthquake actually recovered much more quickly in terms of their reduction of stress and anxiety than people who were in our trials who happened to not be taking micronutrients at the time of that earthquake. So that's something that we couldn't control. Because we had so many trials going, if you were taking a lot of nutrients at the time of that earthquake, you didn't get as stressed. When the February earthquake hit here in Christ Church, we had an opportunity to then really expand that work and see whether or not we could help them recover more quickly. The rates of probable post-traumatic stress disorder, and I call it probable because it wasn't diagnosed by a clinician interview. It was done through questionnaires. In our sample of people who took the micronutrients was 65% at the start of the study. And that reduced down to 19% after one-month intervention with nutrients, which is a really remarkable change in a very short period of time. And there was absolutely no change in the rates of probable post-traumatic stress disorder in the people who did didn't take the nutrients, but had decided to go for conventional treatments. The key to the trials is providing a full spectrum of nutrients required for the entire body to work optimally. So is it possible to get all of our nutrients from food? What's the deal? We are providing the body with extra nutrients at a time when it is under great physical and physiological stress. After an earthquake, your body is in constant fight-flight mode. You're depleting your body of nutrients for that particular function to be served well in order for your fight-flight system to operate at its best. It needs nutrients. It needs them in order for that effort to make adrenaline, et cetera. So, but that means that the rest of the body is compromised as a consequence because it doesn't have the nutrients it normally has. So where to from here? Like, what's the next stage um, in your research? We are very interested in trying to understand why are the nutrients working to the extent that they do. 
Why do people who take the nutrients, why is it that we see some people not respond? What is it about those people that the nutrients have absolutely no effect on them whatsoever? Are they genetically different? Is there something different about their microbiome, the gut? I mean, the gut is incredibly important for the absorption of nutrients. I mean, there are other explanations for that as well. There are going to be some people where nutrients is irrelevant to the expression of their mental illness, that it'll be other factors in their environment or in their upbringing, you know, the exposure to trauma or poverty. We're only looking at one of them. So we are looking at genetics. We're looking to see whether or not there are changes in the brain activity. So we are running studies with children with ADHD looking at functional magnetic resonance imaging to see whether or not we can see any changes in, in brain activity as a consequence of exposure to nutrients. We are collecting fecal samples from some of our participants currently, but also have plans to do this in the future to look at the microbiome. Do nutrients change the bacteria composition of your gut? If the nutrients work, why do they work? Is there something about their genetics? Do the micronutrients have an impact on genetics? Do they turn genes on and off, that idea of epigenetics? People are skeptical of this work. And so we do need to keep just collecting that empirical data, that scientific data that can say, does this work? We are planning a study at the moment looking to see whether or not women who are depressed in pregnancy could benefit from additional nutrients to help with not only the reduction of depression during pregnancy, But we really want to see if we can have an impact on postnatal depression as well. Because at the moment for people who who experience depression during pregnancy, they don't have a lot of options. Um, The antidepressants would be the most commonly used, but it does come with a side effect profile and some risks. Women may be a little concerned to go down that avenue. They could do psychotherapy, but again, there are some challenges associated with trying to help all people who are depressed with giving them psychotherapy. No side effects from the micro nutrients that people experience? Great question. Often people will report in the first couple of weeks maybe some a few headaches or some stomach aches. That's the most common things that we hear. On very rare occasions, people think that they've had a rash, but often by the time they come in to see us and they show us the rash, the rash is gone. But the question is, do they even cause stomach aches and headaches? And I would say I'm not sure. I'd even say the data say the answer would be no, because in that trial that we ran with the adults with ADHD, we asked about side effects, and there were no group differences between those who were taking the micronutrients and those who were taking the placebo on the side effect profile, which actually suggests that the the side effects that were reported were actually through the consumption of a pill rather than the micronutrients themselves. So by swallowing a pill and then you end up with a headache later, you then attribute it to the pill. But it may just be that it's about the the pill, but not the necessarily the nutrients that are contained within the pill, if that makes sense. But the other thing that happens when you're monitoring side effects is that people report side effects. So you're asking them every week, did you, have you had any of these symptoms? And you go through a checklist and you're, ha- you're asking them to really self-monitor. And so under normal circumstances, you may not even notice the little st- the stomachache or the headache, but under trial conditions, we have everything reported. I'm Sonia Sly for Our Changing World. You also heard Dr Julia Rutledge and Philippa Newton from Canterbury University. If you'd like to listen again, head to our podcast page on the rnz.co.nz website and subscribe on iTunes.